Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. President Barrett, members of the faculty and students, each time I come down to visit you here, I am overawed by the greatness of this institution. This splendid faculty and this magnificent student body and all the myriad of subjects that are being taught here, all presided over by men who hold the priesthood of Almighty God. There is something quite overwhelming about your whole situation. There is life and light and divine guidance here, something you will not find in any other university in the world. What a favored people you are to be able to unite your efforts to gain education under such wonderful conditions. In addition to the marvelous educational work going on here, I am equally overawed by the magnitude of the Brigham Young University Stake Organization and the outstanding work this unit of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is accomplishing in a purely religious manner, giving hundreds and thousands of young people an opportunity to work and express themselves in the church organizations and gain testimonies of the everlasting truths which have been revealed from heaven. Members of the faculty, brethren and sisters, you are building something here stronger than you know, a work which, as the Prophet Joseph Smith has said, and I quote, is destined to bring about the destruction of the powers of darkness, the renovation of the earth, the glory of God, and the salvation of the human family. In my work in the Church Historian's Office, my task is to gather in the current historical reports from the wards and the stakes and the missions. There are about 2,200 wards now. There are 239 stakes and there are 45 missions, and our population, church population was given the other day, church membership, as about 1,400,000. The last report of your stake, which I received from Brother Swendeman and his associates, interested me so much that I spent several hours going through it. I was amazed at the scope of the activities going on in the 17 units or wards 
in operation here. The only expression I could think of when I laid down that report was, What hath God wrought? In this report, one of your bishops is quoted as having said shortly after the organization of his ward, and I quote again, The young people of Zion attending the BYU are surely strong in their personal testimonies and generous with their time in the service of the Lord. It has been a great blessing to me, he continues, to be concerned with the organization of this ward and to feel the wonderful spirit of those called to serve. They have lifted the burden of operating the church meetings with willing hands and firm testimonies and have set the new ward in motion, imbuing it with a great spirit of brotherly love and ambition for success. President Romney, members of the High Council, and you bishops and counselors, and all who work in the Brigham Young University stake, I commend you. You are building something more permanent than these huge mountains which stand at our back door, something more everlasting than the hills, something that will endure forever. And that something is the character of these young people. Now I do not know what subject I could take up during the few minutes that are allotted to me. It would be of more interest to you than to relate briefly some of the early trials and struggles of the wonderful boy and man who under divine direction restored the gospel and laid the foundation of the Church and Kingdom of God in this our day, Joseph Smith the Prophet. I am sure that he is our greatest man, and in our Church history he is my favorite character. It was Joseph Smith who saw the visions. It was he who translated the sacred record and gave us the Book of Mormon. He dictated the revelations found in the Doctrine and Covenants. He organized the Church and sent out the first missionaries, all under divine direction. In fact, it seems to me that all we have and are as a people we owe to that young man. And yet he labored all the while in poverty and in distress among false brethren, surrounded by enemies who persecuted and imprisoned him and finally took his life. Speaking of Joseph's poverty, there has lately been found in the historian's office a document that would indicate that when Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery began to translate the Book of Mormon, they were entirely without money to buy any necessary article, even food. This document is a brief account of some of the experiences of Joseph, Joseph Knight, and he was the grandfather of Uncle Jesse Knight, who was so prominent here a few years ago. 
Joseph Knight was a farmer who lived in Colesville, New York. The document was written by himself. He relates that he became acquainted with the Smith family while buying grain in and around Palmyra, New York. From the Smith family, he heard about the visions of their son. In the summer of 1826, Joseph went to Colesville and worked for Mr. Knight on his farm. And he told Mr. Knight confidentially that he knew where there was a sacred record buried and he would get it if he were faithful. The next January, Joseph was married to Emma Hale, and they went to live with his parents. On September 21, 1827, the young prophet went to the hill and was given the plates as he had been promised. It is interesting to note that Joseph Knight paid him a visit just at that time. In fact, the young prophet used Mr. Knight's horse and carriage to drive to the hill to receive the record, all of which goes to show that Mr. Knight was friendly and knew what was going on. After Joseph received the plates, he remained at his parents' home for about two months. But the persecution of his uncouth neighbors was so great that in December he and Emma moved to the home of her parents in Harmony, Pennsylvania, 128 miles to the south. It was there that Martin Harris came to write for him in the spring of 1828, and 116 pages of manuscript were completed. Then Martin borrowed the manuscript to take home and show it to his unbelieving wife. It was never returned to the prophet. The legend in Palmyra is that Martin's wife, not wanting her husband to get mixed up in the new religion, got up in the night and threw the manuscript into the fireplace. At any rate, it was never returned to Joseph. In April 1829, Oliver Cowdery, a young man 22 years of age, came from Palmyra and offered to write for the prophet. Mr. Knight relates that Joseph and Oliver came up to see him shortly after Oliver arrived, told him they were ready to go ahead with the translating, but they did not have any food to eat or paper to write on. It is quite apparent that they did not have five dollars between them. Mr. Knight showed his friendship again. He writes, The next day I bought a barrel of mackerel and some lined paper for writing, and some nine or ten bushels of grain and five or six bushels of potatoes. And I went down to see the boys, and they were in want. Joseph and Oliver had been out that day to see if they could find a place to work for provisions but they had not found any. Joseph and Oliver, ready to begin the work of translating the plates of the Book of Mormon, and they did not have food to eat nor paper to write on. That shows us plainly 
that the young prophet had to be dependent upon the Lord for everything. He had to be humble. In this connection, David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, relates a story which shows Joseph's humility. David writes, and I quote, He, Joseph, was a religious and straightforward man. He had to be, for he was illiterate and could do nothing for himself. He had to trust in God. He could not translate unless he was humble and possessed of the right feelings towards everyone. To illustrate so you can see, one morning when he was getting ready to continue the translation, something went wrong about the house, and he was put out about it, something that Emma, his wife, had done. Oliver and I went upstairs, and Joseph came up soon after to continue the translation, but he could not do a thing. He could not translate a single word. He went downstairs out into the orchard and made supplication to the Lord. was gone about an hour. He came back to the house and asked Emma's forgiveness, then came upstairs where we were, and then the translation went along all right. He could do nothing save he was humble and faithful. In this connection, uh, one, there's a verse in one of the early revelations that I want you to remember. I think it's in section 12, verse 8. It says this, And no man can assist in this work, meaning the work of the church, except he shall be humble. You can't even help on any other principle. And full of love, and that means full of love for the people. Having faith, hope, and charity, and being temperate in all things whatsoever shall be entrusted to his care. Now, coupled with Joseph's humility, I want to say that he was prayerful. It was a prayer that brought forth the first vision. It was a prayer that brought the angel Moroni to his bedside, who revealed to him the hiding place of the sacred record. It was a prayer that brought John the Baptist, who conferred upon Joseph and Oliver the Aaronic priesthood and taught them the proper method of baptism. Prayer preceded almost every revelation recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants. Prayer was one of the foundation stones of Joseph's career. Well, in the midst of their poverty, but with great fidelity and determination, Joseph and Oliver finished the translation of the sacred record in about 11 weeks, as nearly as we can estimate the time. Then, so that he would not suffer another disaster, as he had done with Martin Harris, he had Oliver Cowdery sit down and copy the whole manuscript over again. Seems to me that that must have been a, quite a tedious job for a 22-year-old boy. But Oliver accomplished it, and now there were two manuscripts, 
Joseph took possession of the original, and Oliver took possession of the copy. It was the copy that was used in the printing of the Book of Mormon. We are very fortunate in having in the historian's office 125 pages of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. It is in Oliver Cowdery's handwriting. It is legible and easy to read. Oliver wrote a pretty good hand. We do not know how much education he may have had, maybe what was equivalent to a fifth-grade education today. On reading the manuscript, you find that he could misspell quite a few words. The thing one notices about the manuscript is that there is no punctuation, no periods, no commas, no paragraphs. The story runs on and on like a free-flowing brook. George Reynolds, one of our early scholars and commentators on the Book of Mormon, suggests that punctuation is a more or less modern invention and that inasmuch as there were evidently no punctuation marks on the plates, Joseph did not request Oliver to put them in. I shall have to ask my nephew Hugh Nibley about that. He has just written one of the finest documents we've ever had in the Church, his manual and approach to the Book of Mormon. When Andrew Jensen, assistant church historian, visited Palmyra in 1888, he found the man who had set the type for the first Book of Mormon was still living. His name was John H. Gilbert. Mr. Gilbert told Brother Jensen that he and Oliver Cowdery and Mr. Grandin, the owner of the printing shop, had put in the periods and commas and punctuation marks in the Book of Mormon while they were setting up the type. Well, after the book was published in March 1830, Joseph kept the original manuscript and Oliver kept the printer's copy. In all his wanderings, Joseph carried the document with him. Until April 1840, or until October 1841, when he was living in Nauvoo. The church was building a hotel at the time called the Nauvoo House. And for some reason, which we are not aware of, Joseph decided to deposit the sacred manuscript of the Book of Mormon in the cornerstone of that building. A square cavity was hewn out. It was lined with lead to attempt to keep, the wa- to keep it waterproof. And in the presence of several of his brethren, Joseph brought the manuscript from his home and deposited it in the cornerstone. One of our fine old pioneers who came to Utah named Warren Foote. We have his original journal in the historian's office. He stood there and saw the prophet put that manuscript into that cornerstone. The walls of the building went up, and then three years later, Joseph was killed by a mob in Carthage jail on the 27th of June, 1844. The consternation of the people was so great at Joseph's death 
that everybody seems to have forgotten the incident of the manuscript. Two years later, in 1846, President Brigham Young led the Mormon people out of Nauvoo, and the famous city became a ghost town. Emma Smith was married again in 1847 to a man named Bideman, and for 30 years she and her husband kept a little boarding house in Nauvoo. She died in 1879 at the age of 75. Bideman lived on, and in 1882 someone offered him a few dollars for the brick on the old walls of the Nauvoo house and they were torn down and sold. The workman discovered the lead box in the cornerstone and sent for Bideman to come and see what it was. Water had seeped into the enclosure, and inside was a sodden old manuscript. Bideman lifted it out and took it to his house to try to dry it and ascertain if it had any value. They say that Bideman used a few pages of it to start his kitchen fire with. It was shortly after this event that Franklin D. Richards, the church historian and a member of the Quorum of Twelve, accompanied by his son Charles C. Richards, visited Nauvoo on a sightseeing trip. Brother Richards knew instantly. No, they called on Bideman, and he showed them the old manuscript he had found in the cornerstone. Brother Richards knew instantly what it was and expressed a desire to purchase it. Bideman told him he was welcome to it, and Brother Richards gave him $20, which the old gentleman was glad to get, and the church historian returned to Utah with 125 pages of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. All the other pages, it seems, had dissolved into pulp during the 41 years it had lain hidden in the cornerstone. Oliver Cowdery retained the printer's copy of the Book of Mormon, which he had copied with his own hand. For several years, Oliver was very helpful to Joseph. But gradually, for reasons which are not too clear to any of us, he became disaffected. He did not deny that he had seen the visions and that he had handled the plates. He did not deny the faith. But he came out in open rebellion against the leadership of the Prophet Joseph Smith. At one time, the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon and six of the twelve apostles held a meeting in the Kirtland Temple. Their object was to depose Joseph Smith as president of the church and put David Whitmer in his place. President Brigham Young heard of that meeting. He was loyal to death to the prophet. I have read elsewhere that Brigham wasn't invited to the meeting, but he heard about it and he went bolting in. And the man that wrote the account said he pulled off his coat, said he would smash the first man that said Joseph was not a prophet. <laughs> that broke up the meeting. <laughs> Brigham became the president of the church 
when Joseph died. The others were excommunicated, all of them. Loyalty is a grand principle. Loyalty to your leadership. The following March, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer were excommunicated from the church by the High Council at Far West, Missouri. The best account of the life of Oliver Cowdery is in a master's thesis in your own library, written by Brother Stanley Gunn of this city. Stanley points out that when Oliver left the church, he went to Tiffin, Ohio, and practiced law. He remained out of the church exactly ten years, and there is every evidence that he was not a happy man. He joined the Methodist Church in Tiffin, evidently to seek companionship, but his heart was not there. He had seen and experienced too much to find comfort in any of the prevailing sects. He began to correspond with the leaders of the church, many of whom invited him to return, and in 1848 he sold out his holdings and began the journey with his wife and daughter, traveling in a wagon towards Council Bluffs, Iowa. Arriving there in October, he immediately got in touch with the resident apostle Orson Hyde and asked him if he might be baptized and become a member of the church again. Oliver Cowdery, who had written the entire Book of Mormon as it fell from the lips of the prophet, the man who had been ordained to the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood by heavenly beings, asking humbly to be baptized again. The matter was taken up before the local high council, and with the intercession of Brother Hyde, Oliver was taken back and forgiven by his brethren of all his follies. The next day he was baptized in a little stream running into the Missouri River at Council Bluffs and made a member of the church again. The following Sunday in the log tabernacle at Council Bluffs, Oliver was called by Brother Hyde to address the congregation, and this is what he said. Friends and brethren, my name is Cowdery, Oliver Cowdery. In the early history of this church, I stood identified with her and was one in her councils. Not because I was better than the rest of mankind was I called, but to fulfill the purposes of God, he called me to a high and holy calling. I wrote with my own pen the entire Book of Mormon, save a few pages, as it fell from the lips of the prophet Joseph Smith, as he translated it by the gift and power of God by means of the Urim and Thummim, as it is called in that book, Holy Interpreters. I beheld with my hands and handled with, I beheld with my eyes and handled with my hands the gold plates from which it was transcribed. I also saw with my eyes and handled with my hands the holy interpreters. That book is true. Sidney Rigdon did not write it. Mr. Spaulding did not write it. I wrote it myself as it fell from the lips of the prophet. Well, Oliver stayed around with the saints at Council Bluffs for several weeks. 
and then decided to take his wife and daughter and make a journey to Richmond, Missouri, where his wife's family, the Whitmers, resided. He made the journey in winter with a team of horses and a wagon, and on the way he caught a severe cold. He was sick all winter and could not shake the cold off during the next summer and gradually contracted what was then known as consumption. I guess you would call it tuberculosis of the lungs today. In March 1850, Oliver died at the home of his father-in-law, Peter Whitmer, at Richmond, Missouri. He was 43 years of age. I think it is a great loss to the church was a great loss to the church when Oliver did not come to Utah. What a wealth of information he could have given us regarding the early church history. But it was not to be. Prior to his death, he gave the copy of his manuscript to his brother-in-law, David Whitmer. David kept the manuscript for 38 years, and just prior to his death, he gave it to his son, David Whitmer, Jr., David Whitmer, Jr. did not want it, and he gave it to his nephew, George Schweik, a Kansas City lawyer. George Schweik kept it a few years and then gave it to the reorganized church at Independence, Missouri, and they have it to this day. All the pages are intact, and they have shown it frequently to representatives of our people here in Utah. Well, I have a lot more. But that's, my time is up. Thank you very much for listening. May God bless you in your efforts to gain education. I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.